Hello there, this is Mark Bauerline with another conversation. Before we get to it, a word about one of our sponsors. You may have seen a recent article in InsideHigherEd.com that began, Wyoming Catholic College has a lot of unusual things about it, each enough to merit a story in itself. Wyoming Catholic is a conservative Catholic college that educates students in the great books and Catholic tradition. It also teaches horsemanship and bans cell phones on campus. I love that. And it turned down federal funding. President Glenn Arbery describes the mission this way. This college is engaged in deep ways with the agony of a culture that has lost its spiritual center. We're adventurous and poetic and deeply Catholic. He likes to cite Dostoevsky in crime and punishment. Low ceilings are bad for the soul. The ceilings rise at Wyoming Catholic, which is located in the foothills of the Wind River Mountains. The curriculum centers in the Western tradition. Its Catholic identity builds upon Thomas Aquinas and the magisterium of the Catholic Church and engaging with God in the wilderness. Find out more at wyomingcatholic.edu. We have with us today Bruce Abramson. He is a strategy consultant and economic consultant. He's written widely on technology law, the Middle East, and political philosophy. His latest book is The New Civil War, Exposing Elites, Fighting Utopian Leftism, and Restoring America. Welcome, Dr. Abramson. Thank you very much, Mark. Pleasure to be with you. Uh, well, you know, I have a question about the title. The, the, uh, the, the word there in the title, you say elites need to be, quote, exposed. In what way are elites hidden or, or disguised? You know, it's a funny thing about the title in that um, my working title had been uh, the cult of expertise because I really thought that the key thing was that people need to understand how, how corrupt our elite classes in this country, and how everything that's done in the name of experts and institutions is done to serve those experts and institutions, not the people or missions that they plan to sell. Of course, the publisher said to me, oh, you know, that'll never fly. You really want to talk about the parts of the book that tie that into the problems with the country. So let's call it the new civil war and stick the exposing elites thing down to, uh, down to a subtitle. So we did that. And of course, now, by the time the book is out, certainly uh, post the Fauci email dump, I think people are ready to understand that um, America's expert class has uh, played them for suckers. <laughs> yeah. and, and I want to get into the, the word cult because you actually mean that quite seriously. You're not talking about that as a metaphor, but we'll, we'll, we'll get into that in a, in a few minutes. Now, uh, with some general questions, we, we proceed into the book. You refer to our current, quote, national trauma. What are the major symptoms that you see of trauma out there? Well, I mean, they are everywhere today. Um, the United States has become a fear society. We are not a fear society, and we are not a constitutional republic. And I hate to break that to your listeners, but, but, but we have none of the hallmarks of a constitutional republic. Um, there is no rule of law when the governor can stand up and say, your business, your church, your social gathering is illegal tomorrow, and I'll fine you if you hold it. Rule of law is out the window. Nobody who looks at the way that the January 6th rioters versus the BLM and Antifa rioters have been treated, much less the way that oper uh, the political operatives involved with the Trump campaign versus the Clinton and Biden campaigns have been treated, can believe that we still have equal protection in this country. Due process exists sometimes, uh, as Bill Cosby showed us yesterday, but um, 
when you don't have equal protection saying that due process exists for some people, <laughs> not not terribly meaningful. Yeah. Freedom of speech and freedom of the press, we know are, are, are under siege, um, if not specifically by the government, then by the dominant players and the dominant conduits of voices and stories in this country. By the way, with supporting voices in Congress, uh, freedom of religion, which I think is probably of particular interest to, to your listeners, has been under threat for well over a decade. Um, the, the, battles, the battles are constant. Um, search and seizure rights have fairly minimal meaning in a world in which we are under constant digital surveillance. Um, These things are going on. And, you know, the American spirit has always been very jealous of its liberties and prerogatives. It didn't like to be watched over. It was the leave me alone. You look at, uh, you know, Henry David Thoreau went out to the woods and say, you, you stop bothering me. Uh, is, I mean, we've got a situation where a lot of the country was perfectly, seemed perfectly fine to, when the public health officials said, we got a lockdown except for the Black Lives Matter protests. Those can go forward. Now, I would think in the old days, would, would Americans have, have just gotten irate over this almost universally? But now it seems there's a, there's a willingness to kind of go along to, to tolerate it. I mean, uh, am, I, am I overreading things? No, well, look, there certainly should have been. You know, I came of political age really in the 80s and 90s, maybe to late 70s. And in that era, there's no question that this would have been viewed as intolerable uh, up and down. I mean, you know, 85, 90 percent of, of Americans are said. Now, earlier than that, I mean, you know, we, we've had some troubling periods in our history. Earlier than that, uh, people's concerns were closer to home. So, you know. I'm not so sure. I'm I'm in New York. Uh, I'm not so sure that New Yorkers would have, you know, spent that much time complaining about Klan marches in the 1920s. Um, you know, un, unequal treatment. Uh, you know, has uh, people people tended to look closer to home. They wouldn't have stood for it in their own cities. But if it was in some other city, they might not have said anything. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but it, it is, I mean, this is, this is effectively the problem. You know, Donald Rumsfeld just died, so the Iraq war is back in the news. And there are a lot of lessons that we could have taken from the Iraq war. But one of the lessons that I think people need to understand is, is that you can't just have a republic because it would be a good idea. I, I mean, George W. Bush led a team that went into Iraq and said, okay, we've deposed the totalitarian dictator. Now you folks can have a republic, can have a free society and a constitutional republic. And the truth is they could have if enough of them had wanted it, but not enough of them wanted to have one. You really need a critical mass and, and not a 51% majority. You cannot sustain a republic unless a sustainable supermajority of your people want to live in a free society and in a republic. 
and I'm not convinced that we're there anymore in this country. You know, one of the signal moments you bring up here is the early on is the Supreme Court's refusal to take up the cases filed by the states. I think I think you mentioned 40 states filed suit to raise the question of the election results and the Supreme Court wouldn't even hear it. Why didn't the court take that up? <laughs> well, I don't think anybody knows the answer. Um, I, I think that a lot of us ha have an idea. And I believe that part of the problem, and this is part of the problem facing the country, is that uh, Chief Justice John Roberts is an extremely timid man in a job that requires boldness. And, and, and I mean, you know, this is, this is really what happened. I mean, the Texas versus Pennsylvania case, some, I believe that over 40 of the states lined up roughly half and half on either side. And, and I mean, it was just shocking that the Supreme Court stayed out because what happened was 40 of our states went to the Supreme Court and said, we believe that one of the two major political parties in this country is actively undermining America's constitutional democracy and, and attempting to hold an invalid election for president. And we disagree as to which party it is. And the Supreme Court looked at them and said, gentlemen, take your fight elsewhere. Yeah. Yeah. Well, where, where else? Elsewhere. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There, there, there is no elsewhere. And this is, I mean, this is absolutely, I mean, you, you talk about the things that are most dangerous. I mean, beyond all of the problems that I just outlined, um, what holds our country together, what holds any free society together is the existence of trustworthy mechanisms for nonviolent dispute resolution. Our two best mechanisms are elections and courts. And if you can't trust elections and courts, when, 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 when you have a dispute as to whether or not an election is fair and you go to the courts and they say, take it elsewhere, the only elsewhere is violence. And, and, and by the way, I say this, you know, the Supreme Court, right, the, the, the Supreme Court could have come out with a resolution that I didn't like and it was highly unappealing. They could have said, yes. The following irregularities went into the election, but we're not going to interfere with the reported results. And that would have resulted in Joe Biden becoming president. Um, but it would have informed and strengthened the push for election integrity going forward. And it would have completely eliminated the, the Democrats' ability to try to nail down the rules that meant that the 2020 election lacked credibility. And is that the, the, the frustration we saw on January 6th, would you attribute that less to losing and more to the denial of uh, consideration, the, the, the refusal to, to hear any dissenting protest arguments? Okay, so first of all, let me be very clear. I have no idea what we saw on January 6th. Yeah. Okay, I, I just don't know. Um, I know that we saw a very large, peaceful demonstration at which the president spoke. That was frustration 
because, and you know, this ties back to the basic theme of the book, because our institutions failed us. Because President Trump had trusted certain institutions to come to the rescue of the country's integrity, and they refused to do so. Now, the unacceptable behavior that we saw, the, the riots, the property damage, the incursion, the injuries, the one death, um, that was all unacceptable, but I don't know what it was. Yeah. I don't know who started it. I don't know who instigated it. Well, I, I, I think, just, just to let you know where I stand, I think to call this an insurrection is absurd. No, I mean, we've been experiencing an insurrection in this country, and that's not part of it. The, the insurrection we've been experiencing is, is, you know, the judiciary deciding that they can override uh, executive decisions about things like foreign policy, states deciding that they don't have to follow selected laws because they don't like them. We've, we, we, we've been facing an insurrection in this country. But no, I mean, I don't know. Okay. I, 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 January 6th, I know that most of the people who wandered into the Capitol, because that's where the action seemed to be, or just to see what was going on, were in fact Trump supporters there because they'd been disappointed with the, the, the election and the institutional response to it. But I have no idea and, and no informed opinion about who was responsible for the planning and the initial breach. Yeah. But do you, do you trust, do you trust uh, the government, the federal government, to conduct an inquiry into what did happen? Absolutely not. That's the problem, Absolutely isn't not. it? Trust. It, 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 well, it's the problem down the line. And this is really what I highlight in the book. There are no trustworthy elite institutions in American life. And, and, and that, makes it, that, that makes it extremely difficult to live in a complex society. I mean, look, there, there is no question that, that, that life would be better and easier if we could say, hey, we've got this pandemic. We've got CDC in charge of it. We've got guys in charge of the CDC. We can absolutely trust them to care about the best interest of the American public. But we can't. And so now the question is, what do you do? And the answer is, you have to do a lot of your own homework. And nobody likes homework. This is it. Nancy Pelosi can put together whatever committee she wants. It won't have any credibility. Now, you say that in the last few decades, as we've seen things deteriorate, uh, that the conservative, the conservative movement has been pretty weak in the process. It, yeah, it's been, it's been pathetic. You'd like to talk about patriotic Americans instead of conservatives, right? Yeah. Well, first of all, I mean, there are a number of reasons for that. First of all, I never really considered myself a movement conservative. <laughs> I mean, you, you, can, you, you can pick up from reading the book that I started out on the left. And, and um, you know, I can say that the part of the history that's not in the book is that somewhere around 2002, 2003, I was living in Washington and I saw what was happening with the Democratic Party. And I ran around town talking to the people I thought had been my allies and said, we are losing this party to the loonies. Um, if we do not hold it together and stand against them, um, it's going to be gone for at least a generation. And nobody was interested. I could not find anybody. Uh, and, you know, the, the, the Democrats who I thought of as my allies were the ones regarded as moderates and rational. Nobody was interested in standing against it. Nobody was interested in, in uh, um, standing up for things. 
I wrote an agenda and an outline of where I thought the party should orient itself in the post-Clinton era. And the folks running the party went in the opposite direction on every imaginable issue. Um, you know, I was during the 1990s, I considered myself a comfortable Clinton Democrat and part of the center left. Although, quite frankly, I always preferred Tony Blair to Bill Clinton. Um, but, uh, you know, but it, it's not a matter of conservatism at this point. And, and it's not a matter of the political right. I mean, right now, it's really a matter of who wants to continue living in a free society in a constitutional republic. And, and you shouldn't have to consider yourself a, a conservative to do that. I mean, th there have to be people out there who say, let's raise taxes and maintain abortion on demand, but for God's sakes, value freedom of speech. Let's pause for a moment for what I believe is one of the best schools of higher learning in the country, the University of Dallas, the premier Catholic liberal arts university in Texas. With campuses in Irving, Texas, and Rome, Italy, UD offers a rigorous and exciting core curriculum that sets it apart, an education rooted in the great works of Catholic and Western tradition, an education that ennobles and enables students in their pursuit of wisdom, truth, and virtue. Fidelity to man requires fidelity to the truth, which alone is the guarantee of freedom and of the possibility of integral human development. Those are the words of Pope Benedict, quoted at the University of Dallas, and guiding educators in all the departments of the university. Undergraduate, graduate, and certificate programs are available. Start your college odyssey at the University of Dallas today. Go to udallas.edu to learn more. After, after a little survey of the national scene, you go back into your own history, and you are careful to say you came up as a teenager. You were going into the elite. You went into the elite. You went to Columbia. Oh, yeah. Then you went to UCLA. You got a PhD. You, went to, you were a professor at USC, and you were a big lefty, weren't you? Yeah, I thought I was until I learned what the left was all about. Well, what what were the what were the eye-opening experiences when you really started as an undergraduate when you came in with, you know, what social left beliefs and what did you see? What what uh, what what made you change? Well, there were there were a couple of things that I saw. Um and, and there were there were two sets of experiences that I saw as disillusioning that during my years in academia that I outlined in a book. One has to do with sort of the activism you find on campus, which is invariably to the left of center. And the second one had to do with the mythology of uh, academia as a bastion for the exchange of uh, free exchange of ideas and the pursuit of knowledge and truth. Um, on the political activism end, what I discovered was that people um, were deeply committed to methods as opposed to problem solving. That is an example that I like using, though not one that I use in the book, is that everybody I know would like to help the poor. Okay? This is true, you know, everybody I know says helping the poor is a good thing. But what does it mean to help the poor? Well, there's a theory out there that says if we raise taxes on the wealthy, we'd have more money to give to the poor and that would help them. Well, okay, that's a theory. Now what happens over time is we discover that that theory doesn't work, but it's very hard to help the poor. It's very hard to know when you've helped the poor because it's kind of a hard thing to measure, but it's very easy to know when you're taxing the rich. That's measurable, it's easy to know. So what happens is you get a lot of people out there, like our mayor, Bill de Blasio, 
who want to tax the rich simply because he doesn't think they're paying their fair share. And we saw this explicitly when he ran for his first term in 2013, he had a plan for universal pre-kindergarten that he was going to fund by raising taxes on the rich. And then Governor Cuomo came out and said, nah, you know, we can actually fund that program without a tax hike. And de Blasio said, well, but I want to raise taxes on the rich anyway, because they're not paying their fair share. So what starts out as a laudable mission to help the poor ends up as a crusade to hurt the rich. You know, there is a um, there's a song that I liked for 30 years before I actually paid attention to the lyrics. It's called I'd Love to Change the World by 10 Year After. It was a hit song in 1970 or 71. And it's got these lyrics that say, tax the rich, feed the poor, until there are no rich no more. <laughs> for three decades, for three decades, I, I, I assumed that they were saying, tax the rich, feed the poor, till there are no poor no more. Because that's what I wanted to see. But no, I want a world with no poor. They want a world with no rich. And it's like that down the line when you're dealing with the left. And Bruce, when you describe your course through college and graduate school and the faculty, you keep coming up against situations when, Bruce, you, you just can't keep your mouth shut, can you? <laughs> no, I'm not sure. You, 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 you ask the wrong questions. You, you highlight the wrong facts. Uh, why, why did you do this? Why not just <laughs> go along with the party line? Well, first of all, I've never been very good at keeping my mouth shut. Second of all, I started out too young to know the wisdom of keeping your mouth shut. And third of all, most of the questions that turned out to be most confounding were not meant to be trick questions. And, that, I mean, you, that you uttered, yeah. Yeah. I mean, I was in scientific environments, and, and people would be presenting their work. And they'd say, here was my hypothesis, and here is my conclusion. And I would ask questions like, could you explain the methodology that took you from hypothesis to conclusion? And when they explained the methodology, it was clear that they just made stuff up. Well, there, there's one episode I, I had to I had to laugh while reading it. You're I think you're in your first year of graduate school and a distinguished figure who I think the in, in, in computer science and, and they the department is trying to recruit a distinguished figure to the department who comes and presents a study he did using three groups and you had to ruin everything by saying what was was it did you ask about sample size yeah i i asked how many i i he was showing correlations he was showing statistical analyses and i said well how many were in each group which was not meant to be a trick question it was not meant to show them up it was simply meant so that i could understand what we were looking at right i mean i had i had no idea that there was anything wrong with this study it was only after i asked that question that he told us that his entire sample space was 11 people and the group that he called expert had one person in it who happened to be the wife of a colleague. And, and, and okay, and so they got annoyed with you, right? Well, I, yeah, I mean, as, as, as I say, if you know statistics, you know that I called them out as a fraud. And if you know academia, you understand that I scandalized my host. So th this gets into when I, what I was going to say about the cult factor. Because yeah. you, you really want to regard these, these elite groups as cults. And as cults, the, the first thing you do as a cult is learn the ways and means of self-protection. 
correct? Yes. And yes. You, 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 Bruce, you didn't learn that lesson. <laughs> no, I didn't. And, and, and uh, you know, I was not alone. And I think part of it has to do with, um, you know, I was a 23-year-old PhD. Um, and, and uh, you know, I behaved like a 23-year-old. And that is, I thought that the, you know, I took people at their word. They said, we're out here chasing truth. I said, good, I like chasing truth. They said, we're out here expanding knowledge. I said, good, I like expanding knowledge. They said, uh, you know, I'm reminded. There's a bit of honesty I got once when I was working for a defense contractor after my academic career. They started out, they gave, they gave us a lecture. They said, uh, you know, we are working on defense contracts. Here are your timesheets. It's absolutely imperative you fill out your timesheets accurately and honestly. You put in exactly how many hours you work on everything. If you come in early, you know, that's fine. You stay late, that's fine. You write down exactly how many hours you work on everything, and we don't have you punching a time clock. By the way, it's important that the entry at the end of every day be eight. <laughs> okay. Yeah, th so this, is, th th this is how these organizations work. Uh, how did your academic career end up? <laughs> it got me in the same trouble I, 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 uh, I, I always got into. I put together a ten-year portfolio um, where, where I had. Uh, you, you were you were an assistant professor at USC. I was assistant professor at USC. I had triple the number of recommended publications. I had more publications than anybody in my department for the six-year period that I was there. I had people who liked my work at other institutions who were prepared to speak on my behalf, but they were not in computer science departments. And I put together. Um, what we would call an FU portfolio that basically said, either you give me tenure or you admit your own hypocrisy. Well, you know what? It turns out that that never works because they didn't give me tenure. And to the extent that they noticed that they were being hypocritical, I have no reason to believe that it bothered any of them. Um, it, it was, uh, you know, I, I was, the bottom line was that uh, I was a good teacher. I was a good researcher. I was involved in campus life. But I wasn't terribly impressed with the senior people in my department. And I was even less impressed with the senior people in other schools that they wanted me to impress. And that's the job of an academic. So when it came to doing the job of the academic, they can use all the words they want. But what it really comes down to is the senior members of your department sit down and say, does having this guy here make us feel good about ourselves? Does it flatter us into thinking we got a real winner? Does he tell us how great our own work is? Do we get calls from our friends saying, wow, that young guy you got in your department is completely impressive? No, that's the job. And I was not good at it. And did you imagine in, in you know, 19, 1988, 89, that the, the things, the cultish things that you were witnessing in academia would not end up being confined to academia, but actually would spread out to large areas of elites in, in the country at large. No, I, 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 you know, I left academia in 1993. And my attitude at that point was that, um, that academia in the early 90s 
was like the American steel or auto industries in the late 1960s. Um, big, strong, powerful, terrific reputation, but completely hollow. And, and uh, you know, I looked at it and said, this is, this is an industry that does nothing well. It do, it's not good at teaching. It's not, I mean, th there are pockets of excellence, but overall, if you look at the return on investment of research, it's not positive. Um, they are not good at teaching. Uh, they're not good at, at, at conveying the sense of critical thinking. They're terribly inefficient with their resources and they overcharge. I thought this is an industry that's ready to implode. Again, like, you know, think of American steel or, or autos in the early 1970s, um, which were collapses that nobody saw coming. It didn't occur to me that they would continue, you know, that, that, that I had only seen the beginnings of tuition increases uh, coming at quadruple the rate of um, quadruple the rate of inflation for 40 years, you know, around 2015, I did a back of the envelope calculation. I know what I paid to go to, to go to college. I started Columbia Ivy league school, which means most expensive tier in the country. I started in 1980. I took the numbers that I was paying per credit and I ran them through the CPI for at that point, 35 years. And what I ended up with was roughly the tuition to go to Berkeley in 2015. So in real dollars, the expense of an Ivy League education in 1980 became the expense of an in-state tuition for a top tier state school 35 years later. And, and, and uh, you know, the, the, the Columbia tuition was up 700% from what I had paid. Did, did okay, g given those trends, were you surprised by the ascent of Donald Trump in 2016? Uh, much of it based on the message of the elites have been screwing things up for everyone else and making themselves very comfortable? Uh, yes, I, I, was, I was surprised. And in fact, I, I can say I was, I, I was a Trump supporter from relatively early on, but not from day one. Um, and, and really, until it became clear that he was going to get the nomination, my take on his candidacy was he seems to be raising interesting issues, but I cannot figure out what game he's playing. I mean, it was like everybody else saying, look, the guy clearly can't think he's actually going to get the nomination. He's saying some good stuff. What's he really after? It doesn't make any sense to me. Once it became clear to me that he was actually going to get the nomination, I said, you know, he's saying a lot of good stuff. Um, at which point my uh, my attitude was, I see a tremendous upside, but also more uncertainty than usual. Um, I, I will say that before the election, by September or October of 2016, I was thoroughly convinced that Donald Trump was precisely the leader that America needed at that moment. Were you surprised at the reaction of the the elite after his triumph? So I did not believe that he would be permitted to win. Um, I believe that the forces were all mobilized. And I believe that the reason that he won in 2016 was that um, Hillary Clinton did not mobilize uh, her voter fraud, cam her voter fraud um, campaigns. I, I, I think that, that everybody recognizes 
that voter fraud and stuffing ballot boxes is the dirtiest way to win. And they were so, she was so confident that she was going to win cleanly, that, that there was no point in tainting her clean victory by running up the score with fraud. Um, and it really caught her by surprise. Uh, and that, you know, but, but I, I did not believe that Donald Trump would be permitted to win in 2016. Bruce, last question. Uh, what do you expect to see on this front with the elites in, in the next two years? Boy, it's, it's a really tough call. I mean, you know, I live on the Upper West Side of Manhattan, and uh, New Yorkers over the past year have shown themselves to be among the worst people in the country. I mean, it, it is absolutely shocking um, how docile and sheepish uh, the, the people here have become, how blind, uh, how, how blind to reality. Um, I, I think that uh, they're very pleased with the co consolidation of power inside an oligarchy. Um, I think they're terrified of their own political allies, but they refuse to admit it. And uh, as with the elites we've seen in so many societies throughout history, I think that they are actually looking forward to being among the select few with a glorious standard of living amidst a fierce society and hopeful that they are never called out as the individual victims who have transgressed. The book is The New Civil War, Exposing Elites, Fighting Utopian Leftism, and Restoring America. Bruce Abramson, thank you for joining us. Thank you very much. It's been a pleasure, Mark. And thank you for listening to our conversation, which has been supported by Wyoming Catholic College, which combines great books, the Catholic tradition, and the great outdoors of the American West into an extraordinary education. Go to wyomingcatholic.edu or contact the admissions office at 877-332-2930.